Hi, film fans. How are you? Hope this finds you well. And um, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. Um, I hope you've had a good weekend. Um, we've got a very busy couple of weeks in the fact that we, when we get the opportunity to speak to incredible creative minds from the world of film and music, we can't say no, really. So I give Ben lots more work by saying yes to everybody. And it means that you guys get a couple of episodes a week. So I hope that's OK with you, because I'm very much enjoying these conversations. And there are some incredible films around at the minute. Um, so it's great to get the opportunity to enthuse about them and find out a bit more about them as well. So I hope that's OK with you. Just before we get onto this week's episode, um, I've been really lucky over the last couple of years to um, get the opportunity to announce the EE Rising Star Award nominees for the BAFTAs. Now, this is the only award on the night that's voted for, well, actually, leading up to the night, it's the only award voted for by you, film fan public. Uh, and you get the chance to vote for one of the five nominees and the winner is announced on the night. It's been amazing, actually, over the last couple of years, the people that have won it. Bookie Backray, oh my God, amazing for rocks uh, Lashana Lynch was last year's winner Michael Ward who's nominated for an actual acting award this year as well for Empire of Light Letitia Wright Tom Hardy Daniel Kaluuya an amazing list of talent over the years uh, this year your nominees are as follows uh, Naomi Aki who's nominated for playing Whitney Houston and I want to dance with somebody just a small role Sheila Atim, amazing in The Woman King. Emma Mackey, you've heard us talk about her on the podcast in Emily. Uh, Daryl McCormack for Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. You might have also seen him in Bad Sisters. And Amy Lou Wood, who is in Living. Amazing stuff. Also, Sex Education along with Emma Mackey. So there we go. That's the five nominees. And if you want to vote for them, you just head to ee.co.uk forward slash BAFTA. And the winner will be announced at the ceremony on the 19th of February. I'd like them all to win. Anyway. Fresh off the back of its huge success at the Golden Globes and its multiple BAFTA nominations, I am delighted to welcome the Banshees of Inishedan composer Carter Burwell back to soundtracking. Little did we know that when we recorded this interview at the end of last year, that the film would win Best Picture in a Musical or Comedy and Best Screenplay for Martin McDonough, as well as a Best Actor Gong for Colin Farrell. Hugely deserved for all. Carter was pipped in the best score category by our last guest on soundtracking, Justin Hurwitz, but that takes nothing away from the excellence of his work on the project. And we're going to begin with one of his cues, Walking Home Alone. Thank you. 
It's so great to get you back on the podcast, Carter. It really, really is. And also what's really lovely is I had the, oh, it's always a pleasure getting to speak to Martin McDonough about his mm-hmm. creative process and his brilliant mind and how it works. And The Banshees in is, is an extraordinary film. I just, I loved so much about it. How was it presented to you? What was your first telling of The Banshees of Inisherin? How did it present itself to you? Well, I think probably a couple of years ago, Martin said that he was working on a script about two friends breaking up. And that was it. Yeah. Um, but then, uh, you know, a while before he shot, he sent me the the script, which he usually does. But in this case, there was a, the um, the a substantial reason why he sent it to me before the shoot was that uh, he wanted to know if I was going to write the fiddle tune that Brendan Gleeson plays or is. Turns out that Brendan, you know, he wanted to write it uh, because fiddler. So that was that question came up and had to be decided, of course, before they shot. Part of me said, of course, I'd like to write it. But then when I thought about it, I thought, but I don't really want to get into a competition with, you know, (laughs) Brendan about this, you know. Um, So um, the next time it came up, Brendan already had some ideas and Martin and I listened to them and talked to talked about it. And we liked what he was doing. So, yeah. So I, uh, you know, I never did end up writing anything for that. Brendan's um, piece was very good. Uh, but that's the reason why we talked uh, well before the shoot, because that had to be decided. Yeah. I mean, it's lovely, though, isn't it? It's, I guess it's a lovely opportunity for for the actor. And not every actor would have those skills to be able oh, to right. do that. And it was really lovely actually hearing, you know, Martin, he was so kind of, um, from when I spoke to him, you know, he was so concerned about your opinion on that and how you would feel about it. And and it's, but it's a lovely opportunity to give Brendan to fully form the character with that right. side of it as well, isn't it? Oh, exactly. That's right. It's, it was pretty obvious that, that that would be the best thing. It would make Brendan, you know, help with his commitment to the character and, you know, and because um, after all, he's playing a tortured composer after, in, a, yeah. in one sense. And, um, <laughs> And so it's yeah. good for him to be actually composing the music. Tortured being the operative word as well, <laughs> in many ways. That's right. Um, but what you know, what you guys have done previously as well is really is really sort of step outside the expected, I guess, with with genre and things as well when it comes to to the score and and the narrative. And that's you know when you when you think about three billboards and that kind of almost being a western that kind of idea and stuff and. You know, with this, he was really, he really wanted to kind of kick back against that traditional Irish thing as well and finding that tone of it. And what was it that you kind of connected with, do you think, that that was inspiring in terms of what you wrote for the score? Was it a combination of things? Because that landscape is extraordinary, you know, in terms know. of where it's set. What, what was it you kind of looked at and really drew from, do you think? Well, I mean, upon first reading the script, I thought... Why wouldn't the music have something to do with Ireland, right? Why yeah. wouldn't the score? But Martin, I mean, of course, in Three Billboards, that was sort of the first thing we all agreed upon was that the music would be related to the location in some way. Yeah. Right? Kind of thing. You use instruments that were um local and um and you know connect you to the place. But in this case, uh, Martin really didn't want to do that. And in the end, I think I would say the way I would describe the approach that I took is on the one hand, I try to be true to Porrick's character, which is um, at the beginning of the film, he's basically like a man child, you know, you yeah. see this miniature donkey. And so the music plays uh-huh. sort of his innocence in a way. 
but it also is um it plays the whole film i think sort of as an allegory it's so in other words it's not about what's really happening on a real island um off of ireland it's more uh, allowing you to step back and maybe um interpret the whole thing a little bit more as a fable um so that the the fingers aren't you know you don't get too involved in the physical reality of someone cutting off yeah. his fingers. that's the way i looked at it as you you can take it more as a um, as almost a fairy tale a lot um, about the kind of glockenspiel and these kind of almost sort of these beautiful instruments that that are um they sound almost kind of quite ghostly like and ethereal sometimes and they just have this beautiful kind of quality but give so much room to everything as well and the instrumentation that you've chosen to to use that's true i think uh you know there's ghostly is a good word i think there's a certain mystery <laughs> to it I, mean, yeah. I think at the beginning when you hear it it's um you don't necessarily interpret this it this way, but as as the movie goes on, and once you, especially once there these shots of just like nature, like birds and goats yeah. and things like that that don't actually have any of the characters in them, you begin to, and with the music playing those, you begin to feel like the music is playing the island itself in some way rather than the people, and yeah. um, and I think that that you know there's a mystery to that that I think also you know um, takes you a little outside the the human interaction and um which and that is a little bit ghostly i think that's a good word for it yeah I mean, the performances in this as well, I mean, they're just extraordinary. You know, I mean, it was, it's great to see, to see um, you know, Colin and, and Brendan back together, but Kerry and Barry as well, I just think their, their performances are extraordinary. And it's something that I said to Martin as well that I think he does brilliantly. He writes just brilliant female roles. 
he writes such good female roles. And I, I was I was just kind of interested in terms of that character, Siobhan, and, and when you were writing around her, you know, and if there was any specific conversations you had about or what you, you wanted to try and do with her character musically. You know, there weren't really, but when she does finally leave, of course, yeah. it's at that moment, it's the biggest thing that's ever happened in Porek's life, right? And so. Yeah. The music mostly tries to avoid becoming overly emotional during yeah. you know, really the whole film, you, despite the emotions, in fact, being very, you know, intense a lot of the time. The music sort of avoids that until that scene when she's leaving. And then I think that's the, the first time or at the, almost at the end of the film where the music actually, in, you know, indulges the, the emotional depth of what's going on. And, and, um, and of course, there's no dialogue at that point. She's just, they're just playing off her face and... Um, yeah and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, she's, of course, the only well-formed human being in the whole story, <laughs> yeah. you could say. Uh, and once, so once, she leaves, once she leaves the island, I don't know why anyone wants to sort of want to stay there. You know, the music, to the extent that it plays any one character, it does. It plays Colin's character, you know, right yeah. from the beginning it does. And you see the movie mostly from his point of view. But, um, uh, yeah, that's the, the first big tragedy for him, really, is when yeah. she when she leaves, but it's immediately followed by tragedy after tragedy uh, too. There's a couple of scenes where he's not there when she's in in a scene. There's the, there's the scenes where she goes to the, the kind of grocery store thing to pick up her mail and things like that. But the scene by the lake with Barry's character right. as well. And that and this, the, the, the cue and the music around that as well is kind of, it's not overpowered by it. It's really delicate and stuff. And it's it's got a, it's got familiarity to it, I feel, as well, in terms of, of that, that, that scene. Right. It's true. And it's, um, of course, Mrs. McCormick is also there on the other side of the lake, who, and she is part of the, the mystery She's of that brilliant. island, right? Um, terrifying. So, and, yeah. I know, terrifying. And uh, <laughs> I guess she is, she's the band. Interesting. You kind of just want to hear her. You want to hear everything she's thinking and she's got to say. <laughs> but yes, it's, you know, that... The music plays when there's no dialogue there and um, and sort of you can sink into uh, Siobhan's thoughts and 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 again, the mystery of what in the world's going on with Mrs. McCormick over there. Um, <laughs> but it does open it also then opens your heart as you know, mostly thanks to Carrie's performance and Barry's went to when they have their their moment there uh, by. Yeah. By the way, did you get to go on set at all? I didn't. Um, oh, it would have no. been nice. Shame. You know, no, I know. I have I have uh, kids, so I I before I had children, I used to go visit sets, and I really enjoyed that. But 
Um, now I mostly try to stay home just to, you know, stay yeah. involved, involved in my it, kids' lives. But um, it was also complicated because they were shooting during COVID. So to go yeah. there, I think everyone actually had to do like 10 day isolation before they even allowed to go to the island. So it, was, it, yeah. it would have been complicated. And um, so I, I never did make it, but I'm, it's probably easier to go now, maybe <laughs> yeah. get at some point. It's been a, it's been a great few years as well. I can't remember exactly the last time we spoke, but another film that you've been involved in that I absolutely loved uh, was Catherine called Birdie. Oh, good. And I, I hope you don't mind if we just talk kind of, briefly about that i mean i think oh. that lena's just a force of nature and and such a such a wonderful courageous kind of writer you know i think she's absolutely brilliant and kind of characters and and what she's saying and back from when i learned you know for first introduced her through girls i was just like oh right. yes but i just thought this was absolutely fantastic so i, I wanted to know for you, what was the, you know, what, why did you want to be involved? Why did you want to, you know, be part of, of, of that production? Well, she had been um, emailing me for some time, for years, I think it's safe to say, about um, doing something together. And then she, when she first had this script, it still was like maybe three years ago when she f first had the script and then she was setting it up. And then it, something happened and it fell apart. And then she got it about to go again. And then COVID happened and it fell apart. And then, uh, so we had been conversing about it for some time, even before it was a script. When I read the script, I immediately had my own thoughts, uh, pretty solid thoughts about what the music should be, that it should be vocal music. And I even thought it should be this group uh, called Roomful of Teeth who ended up performing it. And so when you have this really specific thing in mind, like I really knew what I wanted to write, even like a third of the way into the script, then I'm not going to put it aside. I, I, I will, nothing will make <laughs> yeah. me put it aside. I got to, <laughs> I'm got to get it out of me. The, and um, fortunately, Lena was on board with that idea. And um, also fortunately, Amazon, um, who ended up being the ones who funded it, uh, yeah. they were on board with it too, which was great because it was a lot more work doing it like in the middle of a pandemic, getting eight vocalists together and um, from, they all live in different areas, bringing them together to record it. But um, so anyway, it was, it was a dream come true for me. I, I, I love working. I love like working with Lena. I didn't actually hear, you know, I didn't actually physically sit in the same room with her until after the whole thing was done again, because oh, of the pandemic. Wow. she was in London and I was um, out of on the East coast of um, the States. But yeah, doing the working with her long distance and then working with the the singers, it was um, it was a great experience.
I mean, the casting in that as well is absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's wonderful. Is is kind of brilliant. That must be really interesting for you as well when you when you when you get a you know when you get a script before you. I mean, I'm assuming you didn't know who was attached to it and no, I didn't. And, and start. So you you have that first kind of reaction to something gives you a really clear idea of what you want, and then kind of seeing it brought to life through performances as well, and kind of the next stage of that as well must be. Is it kind of heightened what you'd already kind of thought about? Well, yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine what that movie would be without Bella Ramsey. I can't oh. even, you know, she, I just can't picture it, honestly. Um, that's right. And that's, you know, such an amazing find. I think, you know, Lena did find her and then you had to wait a year or two. And said, Don't let her get too old. You know, we've got to, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it was, it was it is really interesting to to experience that. Some a lot of the scripts I read, I know who's going to be in them. For instance, for Martin's movie, I knew yeah. he told me who was casting, and I um, and of course we've all worked together before, or at least me and Brendan, Colin, and Martin. And with the Coen brothers, they generally write with specific actors in mind. So I um, a lot of the times I know who's going to be in something, but that was not the case with um, Liam's movie, and I didn't really know Bella's work. I knew Andrew Scott, but I didn't know Bella's yeah. work. It was, um, it is exciting to see it um, come to life. And also, I don't know, you know, Lena's not, she hasn't directed that many feature films. She did that one yeah. long ago, um, and then two sort of almost in the same year. But I didn't really know her as a director. I didn't know exactly how she would um, direct it. So, it, yeah, that was, it was a lot of big, you know, surprises. And you, know, you never know what's going to come in or, or how it's going to be edited. It, it was interesting, yeah. It's so wonderful when you hear the enthusiasm from you, from, you know, you have this this incredibly successful relationship, like you say, with the Coen brothers and with Martin, but to kind of feel the kind of inspiration and the kind of desire to work with a, you know, an almost first time feature female director as well. It's kind of like, it's it's lovely, you know, it's about the work, it's about your reaction to things and how you react and yeah, what you get from what you read, I guess. That's true. And also like just the opportunity to do something that I haven't done before. And yeah. so that was very true with, uh, with Birdie, like, you know, working with Lena was a new thing, but also working with that vocal group room full of teeth was a new thing. Uh, it was all, it gave me a lot of opportunities to do um, new things. And I have an 11 year old daughter who's exactly the right age for that movie. So she awesome. was really excited about it. Uh, yeah. good it really really is i tell you what else i absolutely loved is the morning show oh <laughs> it's such a great is that a different beast in terms of you know a tv project and the amount of music that's required for something that is episodic for me it really is a different beast i mean it's the only time i've really done that and um the first season i boy it, <laughs> when we by the time we got to the end i was only just beginning to feel like i understood how, how it all worked um but yes, it is a lot that goes on pretty quickly and um, and it just keeps rolling along and never, <laughs> never stops until it's done. They're just about to finish shooting the third season now, pretty soon, I think in the next month or so. But yeah, it's, it's just the very fact that there's no real end. I mean, of course, 
there is some sort of an end. But at the point at which I begin the season, I didn't know how the first season was going to end. And I didn't know how the second season was going to end. They, they're yeah. still writing them when I'm starting to work. And um, I don't know exactly what the last episode of the third season is yet. And um, wow. And that, yeah. And that, but that's the way TV is. All the actors don't know. And uh, sometimes the writers don't know. And um, they're figuring it out as they go along. I think that was more true with with um, you know episodic network television, like you know yeah. where they they actually would it would be on people's TV screens while they're still working on the later episodes of the season. And they'd and they'd see how people react and they'd write to based upon how people react. That's not so true of these streaming um, streaming services where you know, like for instance, Netflix. They want to dump it all there at yeah. once, have people binge it. So the yeah. writers don't have time to react to the public. But anyway, it's just certainly very different for me. I, I usually like take a movie like Banshees. You know, I know how it's going to end and I want to get to that. And when I'm writing the very first yeah. piece, I'm thinking about the ending and how I'm going to get, you know, how I'm going to take those themes and make them develop. But when you don't know what the ending is and there, in a way, there isn't an ending because there might be another season. I don't, still don't totally understand <laughs> the structure of a drama like that, I, I have to admit. It's terrifying. Yeah, it is a little. interesting though because like you say there are kind of you know in 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 certain movies with certain characters there are cues and themes that may well be manipulated and and reappear in different forms and shapes that are either part of the narrative and the development of the character or the story sort of thing and that you know where to place those and and how those are going to fit so the idea that you don't know how something's going to end is kind of like oh my god it's crazy yeah Yeah, it is (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, something like the morning show, it's it's pretty it's pretty character driven. I'd say yeah. that that's probably true of a lot of episodic t- television. So you know, you're mostly following the way that characters are developing and what's happening to them episode by episode. But yeah, for me, it doesn't fit my normal way of conceiving <laughs> drama or cinema. Yeah, it's still diff- it really is a different thing.
there is something I think really healthy about the the kind of streamers that do the episodes weekly. You know, in terms of they make you wait for the next one. It's kind of because I've got two kids and they wait for nothing. Do you know what I mean? They've got no patience <laughs> whatsoever. So the fact that you know, I don't know, we watch Andor and they've got to wait another week for another episode. It's like what? We can't have it now. It's like no. You've got to wait. It's like the olden days. Yeah, the olden days. That's right. (laughs) Do you know what's next? Do you know, you know, in terms of, you know, I think we're all we're all desperate and waiting for another Coen Brothers film and and hoping Martin's already. He said the other night, actually, that he's already got something in his head that he wants to. He does. It's interesting. Yeah, we when we Martin and I began working, he he sort of said, well, I think maybe every four years or so we'll make a movie. And it's, it's it's kind of been like that. It's hard for me to believe in Bruce was 18 years ago, but it was. Crazy. Um, I know. Anyway, he does have, um, or maybe it was, was 18. Anyway, a long, yeah, it, yeah, it quite a while. Something he, like that, yeah. yeah, he does. He, it's not going to be so long before the next one, I don't think. Um, and Ethan Cohen just shot something. He's um, just, right. he just wrapped and he's editing now. So I'm going to be working on that now, beginning of right. next well, the and tragedy the of Macbeth as well was, was I, I remember I was talking to my son about this the other day because he's about to start studying his first Shakespeare at school. And he was kind of like, it's really confusing, mom. And I said, you know what? When I was at school, we did Macbeth. It was actually Polanski's version of Macbeth uh-huh. that I watched that film and it made sense to me from watching the film version. But watching Joel's version of that, was it last year? 21, was it that last year it came out? A few years ago, oh my God, I can't remember. Right. I think it's 21. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was absolutely beautiful. It was just it a is, work of it? art. It's, it's a work of art. Right. Absolutely blew my socks off. I was just, <laughs> I felt like I was kind of physically attached to the screen in a way and I couldn't leave because it was just so powerful. Is that an interesting thing in terms of when you're, when it is something that is so known and has so many versions and has so many has been told, you know, time and time again to to be part of that and reimagine it in your own way. And what was that um, like for you? Yeah, that's true. Uh, there's so many, you know, because I have seen it interpreted so many different ways, as, as we all have. Um, so before he even shot it, Joel and I, we, we would talk about, like, how do you view the witches? I mean, I knew, I knew from the script that he had them sort of being birds. But, you know, that's just a whole question of whether the witches are actually controlling anything that's happening or they um, or not. Or, uh, you know, like just the question of like, yeah, who's in control? Whose responsibility is any are the things that are happening here? And um, there's just so many questions you can have. Like, But that said, Joel doesn't really like to get into endless conversation about yeah. the meaning of his projects. So I mostly had those conversations by myself, with myself. <laughs> and um, it was interesting. I mean, part of. Part of it also is, again, this was another, it was another pandemic uh, project. It was in, um, I think they shot the first half of it or so before um, the lockdown and then finished it right in the depths of the pandemic. And I tried to write the score for strings because I figured, well, we could, everyone can be vaccinated and they can all have masks on if they're string players. Yeah. Uh, but then that, I just couldn't quite pull it off. It has the battle scenes and things needed brass. So you know, to me, I'll always think this is just any composer, you know, gonna, I'm going to think about the logistical problems we face and that those yeah. were very definite logistical problems but um i mean the thing is it is a work of art and um and so such a joy to work on something yeah. like that
Are you back to like pre-pandemic working status yet, or is it kind of still a bit kind of? Well, at this week, yes. <laughs> I don't know what next week will be like. Um, but that's that's true. In fact, when we recorded Banshees at um, at Abbey Road, they had just that week relaxed all their, they'd gotten rid of all of their um, COVID restrictions, basically. Um, yeah. So for the first time that week, all the musicians were all sitting next to each other, just like they used to do with the woodwinds wow. right there, blowing, you know, and everything. And, um, and you know, so everyone at Abbey Road, everyone was so excited, all the musicians having such a good time. Um, uh, so that is the way it is right now. I'm hoping, of course, like everybody else, I'm hoping that doesn't go back. It would have, yeah. it would take a lot. It would take a real disaster for the world to go back. Yeah. That could happen, but we'll see. Yeah. Can you remember that first moment of being back in a room with live music? Because I I remember what it was. It was it was so emotional and so kind of yeah. It made me really appreciate kind of what I'd had and I'd taken for granted. I think. Oh, it's true. No, every every um. I mean, there's of course performance, as you say, but in fact, every recording I did. Basically, they are, it's um, the ones we've just talked about. There's Macbeth was the first one since uh, the lockdown. And to be, I was in a room with, we were all wearing masks, we're all vaccinated. There are all these rules we had to follow. We were tested every day, but we're in a room together, you know, making music. So that was very exciting. Again, everyone just cheered because we were doing it. And it had been a year and a half since the musicians, musicians, they just couldn't work, you know, for that year and a half. Same. So, and then with Birdie, be in a room with singers, you know, recording. That was so great. And the same thing with Banshee. It it made it every every single thing we did so special that we were able to pull it off. Um, yeah. It's. But as you say, now I think you know, basically, we're hoping for just normalness. <laughs> Everything crossed. Listen, it's such a treat to get to chat to you again, and and just to to celebrate your your kind of continued brilliant work. And I really, you know, Banshees is getting the most extraordinary response, quite rightly so. And, you know, long may that continue over the coming months with regards to little shiny structures that people have to go up and collect on stages. I wish you all the best, Carter, and I really thank you for your time. It's great to chat to you again. Well, thank you. It was good talking yeah. to you too. From the score to the tragedy of Macbeth, that's My Black Desires, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Carter Burwell. 
My huge thanks to Carter for taking the time to talk to us. You can watch the phenomenal Banshees of Inisherin on Disney Plus and via other home ends platforms. And we wish you every continued success during awards season. You can hear my previous chat with Carter as well as my conversations with the wonderful Martin McDonough at edithbowman.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. Please do keep spreading the word amongst your friends. We really rely on word of mouth for the podcast. And also head to our YouTube channel for loads of extra content. Next up, we have another bonus episode for you in the shape of it's only James Bloody Cameron talking Avatar and a certain 25th anniversary that's on the way. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>